Hello, everybody, and welcome to the TeacherCast Educational Network. My name is Jeff Bradbury. Thank you so much for joining us today and making TeacherCast your home for professional development. This is the TeacherCast podcast, episode number 178. Today, we're talking all about literacy intervention and things that you can do to help out your students in the primary grades. My guest today is author and CEO of a fantastic company called 95% Group. I want to welcome Susan Hall onto the group. Susan, how are you? Great. Thank you. It's so good to see you today. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about the 95% group. So um, I've actually been working in the field of literacy for about 25 years. But the reason I do this is because our own son, our oldest child, who's now 30, had trouble learning to read when he was in first grade. So I have a very, very strong personal passion for kids who struggle. I've raised a struggling reader. I know what it feels like on the parent side. And we really... Um, saw that so many teachers do not know what to do with struggling readers. It's not their fault. It's that they haven't been trained. They don't have the tools and the knowledge. So that led to our forming this company called 95% Group. So talk to us a little bit about that. Um, you know, Many of our listeners know I'm the father of four-year-old triplets. And, and just this week, um, my oldest start at reading like he, I, I, we have these little grade one books this one was called go go trucks and next thing you know he's picking out words and i'm letting him and then the next day he picks out more and tonight he i didn't say anything he's just reading the book to me and i'm going that's kind of cool but it doesn't take long for a parent to look at the other two and go dude what's going on mm-hmm. how, how do you define struggling reader versus someone who's just not ready yet So, we know really well where kids are supposed to be by when. It's kind of like, remember when your triplets were younger, when they were infants, you'd take them in for well baby checkups? Well, we can think about well reading readiness as well. So, we know exactly where a kindergartner is supposed to be, what they're supposed to be doing. We know what a first grader is supposed to be doing. We can tell ahead of time if a student is not on track to read well later. And talk to us a little bit about what we as parents can do. And we're going we're gonna to go through the whole thing here. Like we're going to go through a whole bunch of different factors that we're going to talk about to help out. But I, I think, you know, obviously the parents are the ones that are or should be noticing this stuff first. What do you do as a parent if you have the suspicion that your child's going to need some extra support? So the first thing to do is trust your instincts. You know, I had an instinct and it was happening in kindergarten because his sister, who's two and a half years younger, was doing things he wasn't doing with the books while we were looking at them, picking out words, all of that. And, you know, I kind of knew something wasn't on track with him. Um, If I had not listened to my instincts, it probably would have taken us a lot longer. And the earlier you get that information and get on top of it, the far better your child is going to be. So trust your instincts, ask a lot of questions at school. If the teacher doesn't seem to be able to answer those questions to your satisfaction, ask about the assessments that your child's been given. How is he doing on those? What reading group is he in? I mean, I never thought to ask that until my child says, hey, why am I in the highest math group and the lowest reading group? So all those things make you as a parent start to think, well, I better get on top of this. And my key advice is don't wait. I, I, I'm so glad that you're here to talk about all this great stuff. Let's kind of see if we can back up a little bit, right? If you're looking at where we are as a, as a nation, as, as young readers, where are we? Are we overall on target? Are we overall, overall ahead, behind? Where do you see us as you know, K to, K to five readers? Where are we with everything? 
It's a concern. I don't think we are where we need to be as the country that we are. So if we were a less developed or an economically more poor country, I could be happier with where we are, but we should not be where we are. If you look at 37 states or 37 nations and you compare reading in 37 nations, you know, we are smack dab in the middle. Well, this is the United States of America. Are we okay with being in the middle of other countries? I'm not. We ought to be way higher. We ought to be in the top tier, and we're not. And that's because our education system is not actually doing the kinds of things for our teachers that we need to be doing. And what should we be doing? Teachers care very deeply about their kids learning to read. Everybody knows how important it is. It's not just parents. Teachers care. The problem that we're having right now in our schools in this country is that the preparation that teachers are getting in their what we call pre-service training is that they are not getting the knowledge base or the tools to really understand how to help a student who is struggling in reading. They know what to do if a child is acquiring reading easily, like one of your triplets. That child, he's going to be fine. He's going to walk into kindergarten, he's going to know about literacy, and he'll do fine, probably with just about any method that teacher uses to teach reading. But what if one of your three actually isn't coming to reading easily. That's where our teachers are struggling. They do not have what they need to help those kinds of students. So today we're going to talk about some of the successful factors that we can bring in for intervention. If we have a student that that needs the help, right? Now, before we get into those 10, what are some of the things that we're looking for when we say needs help? The kid doesn't pronounce words, doesn't read on sight. What are, what are some of these things that as parents who might not be trained at all can be looking for? So that way, once we get into those top 10, we're kind of making more sense here. So even back in kindergarten, before they're supposed to actually start learning to read, we know that there's a problem when a student is having trouble like uh, playing word games with you. Like if you do rhyming and you leave off the word that's supposed to rhyme, if they can't give you that rhyming word, Think about how often that's happening. Or what if you say to them, you know, say this word, then say that word, now say this word, and they can't substitute, like say cowboy, now say it again and change the boy to girl. What's that word? And if they can't say cowgirl, by about four years of age. You know, we want wordplay, okay? So it's attention to words, it's wordplay, it's oral language, it's vocabulary. That's the early stuff. It's different than when they get into first grade, because now we can track if they're actually on track according to some really good assessments that we have. You know, it's interesting just kind of taking it back and thinking about what you're saying here as a parent, because, you know, many people know my kids were premature by four months. So you're always backtracking and backtracking and backtracking. So even though right now my kids are four and a half, they're still really beginning four-year-olds. And as you know, you just mentioned doing rhyming play, I can think of one of my kids could possibly do that where the other two just we're not there yet, right? They're, they're still doing all that stuff. But let's go on with, with where we are today. You know, 10 success factors for literacy intervention. What would the first one be that we should be looking to do? So... I think one of the most important ones is that the schools, when they have students that are below benchmark on early literacy screening assessments, we need for those students that are going to get a little extra help in small groups to be grouped by skill deficits. So 
we have these assessments that are very widespread across our country. And they are ways in which we can screen all the students three times a year. They're one-on-one assessments. And we can tell in kindergarten, first grade, second and third, which kids are at benchmark, below or well below. The minute you have a student on those early literacy screening assessments that is below then we need to get them into a small group right away. Don't wait, they should be in small groups. The most critical thing is to put them in groups that are by skill. So it's not just sort of, oh, hey, you're in the somewhat low group and you're in the well below group. No, it's what do you actually need? What's missing? So group by skills, not just by level. Now, speaking as a teacher who has never taught literacy in, in elementary primary grades and stuff like that, how do you do that without the student thinking that they are grouped by ability level? How do you keep their self-esteem going? One of the things that's important to do is that if you're going to have like an intervention time, but let's call it a differentiation time, or let's have it a what I need time, or it's it could be the, you know, the ranger's time because that's your school mascot or whatever. So you, you basically make it so that everybody is in a group. It's not just for those who are uh, struggling. Everybody's in a group. They're all getting what they need. Now, there may be different size groups. The ones who are furthest behind have the smallest groups, but everybody's in a group. And in kindergarten, they don't really know. Now, first grade, they know because they already know who's reading and not reading. Right. That's interesting. Things you're thinking about right here as we go through here. Um, So number one, we have students who are getting extra help should be grouped by skill deficit. What's our second one here? The second one is that it's extremely important in figuring out to take an extra few moments and figure out diagnostically why that student can't read. So that's where we use some assessments, just like if you go to the doctor and they check a few things or you walk into the emergency room and they try to figure out, you know, what's wrong with you, what what's causing the pain, they almost never write you a prescription to send you out the door just with, you know, temperature, blood pressure, etc. They use those to figure out that you are urgently in need or only somewhat in need of assistance. And then they go into diagnostic testing. It's the same way with reading. We know so well why a student is struggling. If we just take the extra moment to use a diagnostic assessment and pinpoint why they are behind. And is that generally something that the school district initiates or can a parent say, please test my child? A parent should say that. They should ask, okay, what assessments do you use? Um, They should be asking about, are you testing all of the students three times a year to see if they're on track? And then the minute your student, your child is behind, then you want to know, well, what additional assessments are you doing? How are you determining what kind of help he needs? Because it's like anything else. If you if you walk into the doctor's office and they slap a Band-Aid on you and what you needed was an antibiotic, we're wasting your time. And the same thing's true with reading. If we don't get down to why you're not reading and give you what you need now to be able to read, we're kind of wasting your time. Time is critical, too. I mean, if you're behind in reading, there can be no delay in time. There is no time. It's moving so fast. This train, Mm -hmm. this reading train is very, very fast. Uh, You can't get far off track or it's harder and harder to catch up. I I know. uh, We're going to talk as parents, not podcasters today, because this is such an important topic for everybody out there. But, you know, I'm starting to feel like our kids are going into their second year of of pre-K and... 
I think that that's great that they have that extra time because, again, one's moving forward and the other two are starting to feel their way. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing those other those other um, skills pop out here. So, okay, in review here, number one, we have students should be grouped by skill deficit. Number two here is taking the moments to figure out why the students are having difficulty reading. What's number three? So the third one is that when schools set up the this approach of saying, okay, we're going to spend half an hour in these, you know, what I need uh, in differentiation groups, then what we need to do is instead of having every student stay in their homeroom, and what often can happen is, okay, I'm the classroom teacher, one other assistant comes in and helps me. So that means I have a group and the assistant has a small group. But typically that means four or five of us, or four or five students in each of our groups, the other 10 kids, they're doing whatever they're gonna do during that time, but they're not with the teacher. That doesn't work as well as what we're gonna call a walk to intervention model. So what that means is, 9 to 9.30, all of first grade goes into these differentiation groups. Every classroom door opens and all four of the classes, the students file out to the hallway. We all go to where our group is. Now, all of a sudden, the 20 kids in one home room are placed in six or seven different groups, mm. not just two groups. So if you do what's called that walk to intervention model, it means every student's with the teacher, Every student's getting exactly what they need, and you can differentiate far better if we share our students across the grade level. I like that idea, and it certainly makes the kids have more surface time with the, with the teachers and be able to get more of that help that they're looking for. Yes, it works way better. You can get much, much better results than if you just have two intervention groups going on in every single classroom. You can't have as much real true differentiation. Talking today to Dr. Susan Hall about some of the things that we can do to help out our, our struggling readers, especially in, our, in, in the younger years here. Talk to us a little bit about the 95% group. You said that you started it because your own child was having difficulties. What made you transition from mom to entrepreneur? So I started out actually... Um, Getting interested, well, I went back and started getting a master's in um, education. And during that time, I became very interested in what parents ought to know about the struggling reader process. So I co-authored a book with a very well-known reading expert named Dr. Louisa Motz. And in co-authoring that first book, then we co-authored a second one. I was on the Today Show. I ended up speaking a lot to parent groups. But at some point, I decided that Parents are going to work one-on-one -on -one to advocate for their own child, but not every parent is going to know how to advocate. And the parents that we need to advocate for the kids who are furthest behind sometimes aren't going to do that. If I was really going to make an impact, I needed to get into schools and not work with parents, but work with the school system. So therein led the transition from being originally a parent who was experiencing this. I did end up getting my doctorate. I ended up doing a lot of training, and I wrote a book that was one of the eight that I've written. One was a very big, big seller, and that led to launching this business. That is an amazing story. I, I, I love hearing the story of from you know homeroom to boardroom in, in, in getting this whole idea here. When somebody goes over to 95percentgroup.com, who is that? Is that a parent? Is that a teacher? Is that, like, what is the audience and what can I expect to see when I go to your website? 
So it's no longer really for parents. We are really in the the field of trying to work with school systems. So we work with schools across the nation. So the typical person who's looking at our website is either a reading coach, a principal of an elementary school that believes in their heart that reading is not as going as well as they should. It should be in their school. It could be a board member who says, why are our reading scores not improving after all this effort we've had on it? Uh, but typically, it's either one individual teacher who is absolutely passionate about, I have got to find some better resources. I've got to find some better answers because I'm not reaching my struggling readers. And what kind of resources should we be looking at? Let's say you're a board member, you're on, you know, you're trying to do the best that you can for your community. What kind of resources are you finding work? And I don't know if this is a fair question, but aren't working because I know that can be depending on the situation, right? But but what works? What should we be staying away from? So we believe that First of all, our, our approach is focused at the teacher. We don't believe that reading, that there's a reading um, uh, silver bullet that, boom, you get this program and it works for all kids. We believe that it's about the teacher. The teacher is the person who teaches kids to read. What we need is we need really informed teachers who have incredible background knowledge and they need some tools. And some of the tools they need are these diagnostic assessments. So we wrote a couple of those and that helped us to be able to show teachers how to pinpoint why a student is reading and place kids together in these groups that are skill groups. So basically our approach is, this is a whole school change model. It involves the entire school wanting to do this. We need the principal to be on board. We need the teachers to realize that the reading scores are not what they should be in their school. And so we come in with professional development and these assessments for diagnosing and then some instructional materials to use for the small groups. I, I definitely urge everybody to check out the website here, 9595percentgroup.com. Susan, let's jump back into our list here. Again, we, we're looking at the, you know, 10 things that we can do here to help out our students. We said that number one is putting students into groups by skill deficit. We said that number two is trying to figure out why the students are having difficulties. Number three, you talked about the walk to intervention model. What's number four? So, number four is to use an appropriate assessment to monitor progress. It's all well and good to get kids in small groups and start that intervention, but you can't let it go on without knowing if it's working for every child. So, every three weeks, you do about a one to two minute assessment to just figure out if each student is on a trajectory of progress. Because if they aren't, we don't need to wait till, you know, the end of the year and go, oops, it didn't work. What we were doing wasn't going to meet his needs. So we monitor progress about every three weeks. We chart it. Parents can look at the charts. So we want to be able to tell that every student is on the right trajectory. When we're looking at this, are these assessments things that go home? Because one of the words we didn't talk about yet, and I'm happy it hasn't come up yet on the show, is technology, right? Because I know a lot of times it's something isn't working in the classroom, throw a tablet at them. I haven't heard that from you. Is this a fix it with tech? Is this fix it with knowledge? What is the overall way that we're looking at doing this? I'm really glad you asked that. Um, we believe that 
it's very hard to fix reading with technology. If it could be fixed with technology, it would have already been done. That's not to say that there aren't some good technology products that help students practice, but reading is incredibly complex. And therefore, we need a very wise teacher sitting across from students, and that teacher is the first and primary instructor. Yes, I'm not going to say that there aren't technology tools that are useful, but, but in my heart of hearts, I don't believe that computers are going to teach kids to read. Can I, can I just sit here and clap for you? As the technology coach, right? I'm going, yes, that is exactly the way that we should be looking at doing things. Okay, so we have the walk to intervention mode. We have using appropriate assessments. What is the... F where are we at? What's the fifth one here? The fifth one then is to flood that intervention time with extra help. So that means in that, say, 9 to 9.30 that first grade is doing their intervention, we don't just need, you know, we need those four classroom teachers if that's how many first grade teachers there are, but we need to have about three or four other people who come and help that walk to intervention model because we're never going to get our group sizes small enough if we just take those kids and put them with four teachers again. We need to have like at least 50% more assistance to help with those groups. Am I wrong in thinking at this point, it sounds like to fix the reading problem in our country, all we need to do is spend more money on more teachers? Uh, saying, Let's add more people. Let's add more people. And dollar signs are flashing through many people who are listening to this. Am I, am I close on this or am I totally way off? And please tell me if I'm totally way off on this. So I'm glad you're, you're, you're asking that because I don't believe this is about throwing more money at it. The places where we're working already have, the schools we work in already have some assistance. They're already in those schools. Now, they may be in the form of paraprofessionals, they may be reading specialists, they might be others, but we need to use those resources wisely and flood everybody who's available into that intervention block for that time period. They can be doing other things the rest of the day. So but we, flood them in. So we can change this country's future without money and without technology. I do not believe it's going to take technology. And I believe we have the money, but we need to use the money we have in a different way. I want to hear what number six is. So number six is to use intervention time wisely. And one of the things that's really interesting is that we have a lot of materials in classrooms. It's not about not having materials. Often, teachers, like all good professionals, make adjustments to whatever you've been given, right? You look at it and you go, eh, I can teach this a little differently, right? I know, I don't need this part, and I'll add this thing in. And, you know, we all do that. And there's not a problem with that, except you have to understand what makes the lesson work. So, you've got to be wise, and that's why it's about teacher knowledge and developing those teachers so they are making really good decisions in the spur of the moment at the front line. So we need wise teachers with good materials, but they need to understand what it is that's making that intervention uh, routine or strategy work. So we've gone through six out of the 10 things. I want to back this one up. And guys, I'm sorry about there if I'm making this podcast a little personal, but here we are working with these young readers. And it's easy to ask the question again and again, and I'm sure I've already done it on this podcast a couple of times, what can I as a parent do? But what can I as a parent do? Like we have three kids, we have two parents. Should we be putting all the kids on our lap, which I love doing and reading them a book? Or should my wife take one of them and I take two of them and we play teacher at home? All right. Like, I'm not sure what the right word to help me out here. 
All right. So as a parent, the best thing you can do is not not worry about teaching your child to read those words in that book, but rather give your child a love of reading, read aloud to your child as much as possible, because reading aloud to children gives them introduction to oral vocabulary that is far different than what you say day in and day out. And let me give you an example. My son's favorite book when he was about four years old was Mike Mulligan and the Steam Shovel. It was a classic children's read aloud. I analyzed that book and it backed up some research I had read, which is if you really look at the words in some of those great children's read alouds, they are not the words that we speak day in and day out. They're really rich vocabulary and that's been backed up with research. So by reading aloud to your child, you are exposing your child two words you might not be saying day in and day out to them. So rich oral language is one of the most important things to do as a parent. And the reason it's important is because later on, when you're, you said they're four years old now, right? When your four-year-olds are in first, second, and third grade, and they're reading themselves, they're going to start to look at a word, um, rascal, and they start to sound it out. Well, if they've never heard the word rascal, they don't know that they just read that word correctly. But if they sound it out and they can attach meaning to that, they're going to go, ah, that's rascal. And they can put it together at that point. So, so what happens if you find that you're not sleeping at night because you're having dreams about Pinkalicious? <laughs> just, just asking questions here now. I'll say get some other book. <laughs> I'm just not allowed to sometimes. I know they want the same one over and over again, the right? Same one over and over again. Oh, we, yeah. we, we've got Pinkalicious and we've got all the Batman stories. And then I've got all the Cars stories from Disney. And we just kind of every now and then I have to sprinkle in some Bernstein Bears and stuff in there. But but anyway, that's dad talk talking. All right. Let's get back to the list. We've got a, we've got a little bit of a way to go here. Uh, what do we got here? One, two, three, four, five, six. Number seven. All right. So number seven, it, number six actually is use intervention time wisely. And number seven is be, be aware of what makes it effective. So let me go back and revisit six and then we can go to eight. So struggling readers are under a timeline. We don't, we can't waste time. So we urgently need to catch them up to grade to grade level. So when we have an urgent timeline going on, we have to use every minute of intervention well because they're only going to get so many minutes of that very small group with a teacher. So we need to use it very wisely. We need to make sure that we've got it right. And the the school has to get the best interventions in place in their school that they can possibly do. So use intervention time wisely. Be aware of it. It makes it effective. And then there's number eight. Go ahead. Number eight is provide teachers with good intervention lessons. And the reason that's important is because what the education field is calling what I'm talking about, the name we use to call it is either MTSS, multi-tiered systems of support, or RTI, response to intervention. Those are the umbrella names for the structure of providing kids the kind of help they need in small groups. And so, What happens is teachers have to prepare their lessons for the core, you know, the core program, the regular 90-minute reading block. And that's a lot of work to prepare what you're doing with the whole class instruction. To ask them to also prepare every 30-minute intervention lesson they're going to have to teach is overwhelming. So the best thing we can do for teachers is to give them good materials that are already prepared for the intervention lessons so that they can pick those up and teach them well. 
So when we're looking at all of these things, it's important to, again, this isn't technology. This is one-to-one time with the students. This is the stuff that that we need to be doing more of, right? Because when you're saying bring this stuff in and, and creating lessons, I'm used to hearing and throw STEM education at them. That's not the answer, folks. It's spending the quality time with your students. Let's wrap this up here. Uh, Give me nine and give me 10. All right. Number nine is about investing in professional development. And this is something that when we talk to principals and school administrators, they tend to want to say, okay, I've got a budget of X dollars, whatever that is. I'm going to spend it all to buy all the stuff I can. And we try to convince them literally every day, This morning, I picked up a call. It was a principal from a school in Arkansas who had heard a recommendation for us over the summer. She said, I have a budget of X. And I said, okay. And it was a nice budget. And I said, okay, can you just tell me a little bit about what you're thinking of doing? You know, what are you buying? What, you know, she starts to tell me and she's going to spend every single penny on stuff, on materials, right? And I wanted to say, and I finally said to her, can I, can I talk to you a little bit about that to make sure you're getting all the right things? And I need to help her see that she's going to get more out of her money if she spends some of it on materials and the rest on professional development. We need to provide the teachers a chance to get great quality professional development with coaching. I, I, I agree with that one 100%. What's number 10? Number 10, inspect what you expect. And that may be a little harsh sounding, but, you know, the principal as the building leader has to be passionate about this, has to believe this will work, having these small group interventions. And so the best thing the principal can do is just walk through during intervention time. Stop. Spontaneous intervention, you know, spontaneous walkthroughs, not big evaluative interventions you know, observations, but just caring, watching what's going on during intervention time. So just walk through. And I do a lot of principal training on how to do this. It's really important that they care, that they show they're there, that they stop and ask questions, and that afterwards they provide feedback to the teachers. Talking here today to author Dr. Susan Hall. Susan, tell us a little bit about your recent uh, publication with ASCD. So this book, um, which I wrote a a uh, proposal for and ASCD became interested in it. Um, It is about the 10 success factors for literacy intervention. It's really the reason this book came about is because I could see that schools were starting to try to do this differentiated instruction under the multi-tiered system of supports. But what was happening is they thought they were doing MTSS and they were leaving incredibly important pieces of it out. So it was like adopting half of the approach. And so what's happening out there in the schools is that you're seeing some schools get incredibly strong results with with their um, differentiated instruction. And you're seeing others getting very lackluster results. And my concern is that this too will pass. This will become viewed as a fad when in fact, this is just good foundational approaches to instruction and meeting the needs of all students. So I don't want this to be a fad. Is this something that a teacher might want to read cover to cover, or is this more pick a chapter depending on where they are in their school year? 
So it's not a super long read, and I think it's so practical that I don't think they'll find it difficult to pretty much go through the 10 success factors. And I think the kinds of people who will be particularly interested are principals who are scratching their heads saying, we got to do better. We have not made improvements in our reading scores. Why is that? What are we not doing that other schools are doing? Hmm. I, 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 great book, right? Like I, I, people know me who listen to the show. I'm not one to read cover to cover, but I had the opportunity a couple of days ago to kind of flip through a couple of things here and guys definitely check this out. All the notes and the links are going to be over here in our show notes. This is teacher cast podcast one seventy eight, And of course, everything's going to be available here. All the links to ASCD and to purchase it where you like to purchase your stuff. Susan, this is certainly a very important and interesting topic, both as a podcaster, but certainly as an educator and most definitely as a parent. Where do you see the future of this going? Is there hope for a country that's as strong as the United States to be not in the middle of the pack? Absolutely. There's no reason we can't be higher. I mean, there is no reason. All we have to do is have the will to do it. And how do we do that? Because it's so hard to move a mountain. And now we're looking at the middle of two mountain ranges. So I think that we need to decide that literacy in the early grades is so important that we can put aside some of these other things. For example, everybody's very enamored right now with flipped classrooms, with one-on-one technologies, all of which are great. I have no objection to any of those things. It's just that if they can't read, why are we spending all our time on that? You know, we need to get them solid reading in the first two to three years of schooling. So if we really make this important enough, this is totally doable. We can do so much better than we are. The new publication from ASCD is called 10 Success Factors for Literacy Interventions, Getting Results with MTSS in Elementary Schools. My guest today is Dr. Susan Hall. Susan, thank you so much for your time today, and please invite yourself back on the program. We would love to continue learning more about this, and maybe we can put our heads together and come up with numbers 11 through 30. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be interviewed today. And we, of course, want to know what you guys are thinking about with this interview here. What are you doing in your classroom to help your kids? And what are you doing as parents out there? I'm looking to find out what are you guys doing out there as parents to help your young readers. You can, of course, reach us on Twitter at TeacherCast. And leave us a voice message over at TeacherCast.net slash voicemail. Or simply email us over at feedback at TeacherCast.net. want to remind you that we've got some other great podcasts on TeacherCast every Tuesday now. We've been putting out our brand new Ask the Tech Coach dedicated to the instructional technology coach in us all. That's over at Ask the Tech techcoach.com and if you're interested in learning how to create a podcast of your own or create that perfect website we have our brand new educational podcasting dot today where you can learn how to create the perfect digital hub for yourself on behalf of everybody here in the teacher cast educational network my name is jeff bradbury reminding you to keep up the great work in your classrooms and continue sharing your passions with your students